This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Welcome to Doing Translational Research. I am Maria Fitzpatrick. I'm an associate director here at BCTR and filling in for uh, Chris Weldeman, the director. Today, we're excited to have Will Hobbs with us, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Human Development and also in the Department of Government and on the graduate field faculty in information and science at Cornell. He studies politics and health, especially the social effects of government actions and how small groups of people adapt to sudden changes in their lives. His recent projects have studied the development of public attitudes towards the Affordable Care Act, how social networks heal after a death, and unintended consequences of online censorship in China. Welcome, Will. We're excited to hear more about your work. Thanks for having me. Um, Well, so let's kick off by maybe you can just provide us uh, with a summary of your main research interests. What are the big questions that you try to answer in your research agenda? Uh, Sure. So, I mean, most of my work does focus on sudden changes and how individuals or small groups of people adapt to them. And it could be the death of a friend or a spouse, or it can be some kind of uh, political change. Uh, It could be a change in rhetoric or a change in policy. Uh, And that's sort of how I think about my substantive research. Although usually when I'm classified as a researcher, it's more um, for the methods, so data science using complex data sources like social networks and text, um, and then causal inference. Instead of running an experiment, trying to observationally identify that you know, something caused something else, and I usually do that through these sudden changes. Mm-hmm. Great. And so what is the most recent research question or research area that you've been working on that's gotten you really excited? Uh, yeah, so the most recent work is, is more focused on uh, actually the, the tech side of things. So I did a lot of work um, with social networks, so studying how uh, after a friend's death, the social network rewires. Uh, and especially the, the patterns of that over a year. Um, lately, I've been moving, so still using networks, but networks of text, and studying how we can summarize. So if we ask someone, uh, for example, what do you do to make your life go well? Well, we can read that response and we can code it, but we might also be able to use machine learning to summarize it in a very in a very succinct way. Or if we ask someone about their attitude on the, the Affordable Care Act. So we know that most views on this are fall on party lines, and we might wonder, is that really all that people think about the AC? Is there anything more complicated? Well, we could ask in an open-ended survey response and see, how do you do, why, why would you say you like or dislike the ACA? Uh, and they do fall on party lines, but we can also des- design algorithms that can summarize multiple dimensions of people's attitudes and don't, that don't just fall on party lines, and that might actually, might actually explain, for example, how the policies has connected to their personal circumstances mm-hmm. and how that influenced their attitude to the law. Mm-hmm. And have there been key themes that you found out of that more complex analysis about how people mm-hmm. are relating to the law? Uh, yes, yes. And so for the most part, attitudes have been pretty stable, but they changed, um, especially after the law was, was signed. Mm-hmm. So before the law was signed, um, people didn't tend to, as you might expect, list specific things that they would like for the law to have. Uh, once it was signed, though, the, given that the, the space of possible policies was much smaller and they knew what the policy actually was, then people could list things that they liked about the policy and that they wanted to keep. Mm -hmm. And so we suddenly start seeing people talk about uh, pre-existing conditions, uh, staying on parents' insurance. We also see a decline in this abstract opposition to the law, so just talking about the role of government and saying we should keep government out of our lives and moving over into personal costs, so its effect on premiums and deductibles. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it is 
still pretty stable and does fall on party lines. But the variation from, for example, role of government to personal costs explains um, some within party differences and uh, who you might support in a primary, for example. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Great. Well, and so um, could you talk a little bit about either in that type of, in that area of research or in other areas, how you involve community agencies or other non-academic stakeholders mm-hmm. in your processes? Uh, sure. So uh, most of my experience here in um, more uh, uh, community settings has been uh, answering questions about uh, uh, mortality risk or suicide and uh, online social networks. Mm-hmm. And so people, so my study on um, um, social integration on Facebook and mortality risk studies um, how different activities online are associated with different causes of, of death. And often the, cause, the, the associations are that if you, if you have cancer, then you interact more with friends um, who you receive a lot, more, a lot more supportive posts or you post many more statuses to tell people how you're doing. Um, but some of the other act- activities online seem to suggest that if you have lots of um, uh, mutual interactions online, so sending back and forth um, messages instead of just posting in general to anyone, um, it's, a, it's a better sign to have someone you're specifically talking to and having and getting support from specifically. Mm-hmm. And this is associated with uh, lower suicide risk and um, lower risk of uh, drug overdose. And so in, so in talking to people about this result, there, you know, people have very, a lot of questions about the suicide risk part of it. Uh, one thing that I often have to clarify with that is that, uh, is for example, the, the study population. So when people think about uh, online social networks, they think about young people. But that's not who we were mostly studying in this, in this analysis. It was mostly older people, and the average age was about 50. Mm. And so when we're thinking about that, it's not necessarily that um, we should interpret this as applying always to younger people, and that we might think of it as already having social networks offline. And the people who are 50 years old at this point are uh, reconnecting. And it could be very different that we're for- if we're forming social networks uh, online and offline simultaneously. Interesting. And, and, and do you think that there are particular policy implications of this? Or have, have, you, have policymakers been interested in engaging around potential, you know, ways to address some of these, um, you know, some of the relationship areas that you're bringing up? Uh, there's definitely interest. Of, I mean, for some of the areas, <laughs> my role is mostly to focus on the, the uncertainty we have. And, the, um, and we, we don't have a lot of studies in these areas, partially because and a lot of our best evidence comes from experience. And when we're thinking about um, mortality risk or suicide or, or some uh, large change like a policy, you, you often don't have many experiments. Uh, or you might have a, a specific study population. And so when we're thinking about policies that we might want to focus on younger people, uh, my response is to emphasize the amount of uncertainty that we have and to talk about what kinds of studies we might want. And so an obvious extension here would be to study specifically younger people um, and how that might um, Help, although at this point, we need to be um, careful and thinking about how we study it because young people's online social networks are really complicated. And that's part of the reason we have so little evidence on them in that they're not just using one social media site, they're using many of them and they're changing, um, changing very quickly. And so if we just get one source of information, we actually only have a very partial picture. Mm-hmm. So we have to be careful about how we interpret one, one study or one source of information. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, so, um, you know, I guess on top of what you just described, are there other things that you would like the general public or policymakers 
uh, to understand about your work in particular, mm-hmm. maybe or could you pick out two or three things that sort of quote unquote ordinary citizens might find um, most useful from the various uh, strands of research that you've described? Uh, sure. So I mean, I think that some of the takeaways from the work um, could be pretty obvious for someone who's experienced them. But I also study lots of events that are rare events. And so many people have not experienced them. And so it's a way of summarizing these, um, these events that people experience maybe once in their life, but that at any given point, most people don't have experience with them. So for example, one of the, the first things I studied you know, going into graduate school, just getting started in research, was uh, the effect of the death of a spouse on a, on a um, just getting out to vote, so as a measure of civic engagement. Uh, now here you might think that um, there will be an emotional effect that um, after the death of the spouse, there's the bereavement period, and then um, involvement in the community would follow what we might expect from an emotional response. Here it's showing that actually someone's behavior depends in a lot of, a lot of different ways on someone's um, spouse, and that if they, they were maybe less politically interested, if they voted less than their spouse, they're going to be really affected by the loss of the spouse, and they won't vote nearly as much as they did before. But if they were more politically interested and they voted more, they might be totally unaffected and then you don't see an emotional response. So there's a social component that's completely distinct from the emotional side. And then for some causes of this, so for example, um, caring for a dementia patient, or a, you know, a spouse who has Alzheimer's disease. At that point, we have the reverse effect, which is actually what I was looking for in going into the study. So the effect of intense caregiving, uh, burden, and involvement in the community. So at that point, there's, there's low turnout before the, the loss of a spouse and increased turnout after. And so we have these things, it's, it's, it's more complicated than just bereavement, it's sadness. We have social connection and our social networks affect uh, us in ways that can make us seem like we're, we are changing uh, very suddenly when really that's who we are at the first place. It's just our social networks changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, great. Well, so um, if there were one real world change that you could make based on your research, what would it be? Would it have to do with the various uh, ways that we connect uh, with others or would mm-hmm. there be some other... Um, component, you know, some other thing that you would change? Uh, yeah, so, I, so I've obviously thought about this, this kind of thing a lot. and uh, In a lot of ways it's complicated, but there are, there are certain parts of the work that I think are more specific and things we might learn for, um, in an ideal setting we would change uh, the structure of um, social life. And one of those ways is that, so after, after the death of a friend, for example, we see a rewiring in social networks where people kind of um, increased interactions with each other um, to make up for the lost interaction with the person who died. But we actually see this in fairly specific ways, and young people are really important, even accounting for how much activity they have online in general. Uh, even accounting for that, someone who's you know, under 25, who's still forming their social life, they have a lot of flexibility. So if, if, someone's, if someone in the network dies, they can actually fill in much more than the average person. But someone who's older may not have the same flexibility. And so I'm thinking about who can fill these holes, who can actually be supportive in a very flexible way. It's important to have connections between uh, younger people and older people. Um, I mean, this is sort of in a, a stretch from what I've been able to study in my own work, but I, I find the, the idea of combined child and senior care facilities really um, fascinating. I think that's, that's, that's you know, a stretch from you know, early 20s to uh, 60s. But you know, if we go even farther, I think it's a, uh, I think it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've talked a little bit about the some of the similarities and differences and how people respond to changes in their social 
networks at different ages. I wonder if I could ask you to sort of loop back to the beginning of the conversation and your um, discussion of your research on the Affordable Care Act Mm -hmm. and how people, what people's, you know, sort of digging into people's attitudes on that law and mm-hmm. and how those developed as the law itself changed. Right. Did you see much difference across the age spectrum in in those dimensions too? Like I'm wondering if this mm-hmm. age, if these differences across the age spectrum are sort of a theme oh, yeah. across different types of analysis of public opinion and the way people are thinking about things. Uh, a little bit. I mean, there's always an age component here um, because you know, the value of healthcare is going to vary with age quite a bit. And we also have Medicare. Uh, and so in the text, Medicare is a, a huge issue when she was 65, and it's not so much an issue before. But we can also see that Medicare is, is on the same dimension as personal cost. So in thinking about how premiums deductibles are changing, people are also talking about how it might change Medicare. And that's, um, so we have basically the same themes across age groups, but they're touching on different aspects of the policy. Um, in terms of other age differences, you know, they're less, less obvious, and some of the fo- uh, focus here is thinking about uh, the transition from um, to getting Medicare and how that affects, you know, if you experienced uh, buying insurance on the exchanges, does that affect how you think about Medicare or how you think about the ACA, even though you're not buying on the exchanges anymore? Interesting. And so let me ask you to sort of both back up and maybe dive a little bit deeper into telling us a little bit more about... Um, the way that you do these analyses of mm-hmm. all this data, right? It strikes me that what you're talking about doing is is only somewhat newly available to mm-hmm. researchers because we now have, you know, you know, sort of troves of data about ourselves. Yeah. We have a lot of text to conduct analyses of, and mm-hmm. we have presumably new ways of analyzing that that are developing all the time. And I wonder if you could give sort of a, an overview for, again, the quote-unquote ordinary citizen to understand a little bit better how um, how having that text available makes these things possible and then sort of what things you think about as you're setting up these text analyses. Uh, sure. I mean, some of, the, some of the analyses, it's, you know, you might think that they're they're more complicated because we have more data. But actually, when you have more data, sometimes the analyses become much simpler. Huh. Um, so for example, we're studying someone who's lost a spouse. Uh, we like to compare someone to someone who's similar in a lot of ways, but still has a, who still has a spouse. But if we have a lot of data, we can um, we can look through the data and see if we can find someone who's pretty, pretty similar and see how they might have changed over time. Or in a social network after the death of a friend, uh, you know, we know that, um, especially if we're studying this online, that most social networks say, um, they evolve, right? They, you, you lose some friendships and you gain some friendships. And so if you're looking at the same friendship cluster, that's going to fray over time. And so we need to compare to that group. And so having more data there lets us find a group that's more similar to what we want to study. Uh, and it also com- lets us compare on uh, more dimensions. So we might have you know, a better match on age. We might have a better match on um, how frequently they communicate. And that's kind of how the text analyses work, too. Um, and in text analysis, we're looking for, um, you know, similarities across text documents. Um, so if this person uses the word um, government, do they also use the word intervention, interference, regulation? And we're looking for this kind of redundancy in text when we're trying to summarize it. And we're trying to summarize it in, in ways that are really compact so that if we, if we just see the word government uh, in a political response, we can pretty much tell that they, they don't like government. <laughs> we don't have to read the rest of the text response, we can infer what's there. And so we're looking for this kind of redundancy where we just need to see part of it uh, to infer the rest. 
And so going forward, sort of, what do you think the big uh, still unanswered or, you know, you're going to answer them next kind of questions are, right? Like, what? Yeah. where do you think your research or where do you think this um, broader area of textual analysis and thinking mm -hmm. about either social networks or political opinions is going to go? Uh, you know, I, I guess it's, it's something I'm thinking a little bit more on the the, the data science side and the, the methods side where you know, we have big data, we have machine learning, and then we have traditional methods like representative sampling and causal inference. Now, going forward, I think we need to, to merge those, mm -hmm. and so we need to bring da big data to small data. Because big data gets, a lot, gets us lots of leverage to do these simpler analyses and to find uh, patterns in data. But we don't know to what extent this is driven by the sampling that we, that we have when we collect big data. And so we would like to have smaller samples that we know are gold standard in some way, and we can apply what we've learned through big data to these small data sets to see if they really, they really generalize um, beyond beyond now, beyond this specific group. Great. Well, thanks so much for talking with us today, Will, and for telling us uh, all about your exciting research. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.